Okay, we're going to get started. I'd like to invite you to come back to your seats. Sorry to break up. Good conversation. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. Like I always say, if you're a guest with us or it's your first or uh, second, third time, we're honored that you would uh, choose to worship with us, um, worship with our family here at Providence Road. One quick uh, uh, announcement, tweak, um, membership class next week, it's 5 to 6.30. 5 to 6 30. I didn't get her the, the right information. So 5 to 6 30 on, um, for the membership class starting next week. Uh, we're starting, uh, we're continuing on in our series where we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is our third week among many weeks to follow. And um, we find ourselves today in, still in chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 today. Verse, we're going to start in verse 17. Starting in verse 17. If you're uh, following along in one of the, the Bibles under the chairs, there should be one in a, under every other chair. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. First Corinthians is in the New Testament, probably about three quarters of the way through your Bible. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. I pray this morning that we would see the gospel clearly. That we would see um, what the cross means to us. We would lay aside... Um, preconceived notions of what the gospel is and, and what Jesus did for us on the cross. I pray that we would put ourselves under your word this morning, that we would, we would listen with attentive ears, that we would be open-minded as we walk through this passage this morning. And I pray that you would change us through your spirit, that you would change our minds and you would change our hearts. Because this is your word. This is, this is you're, you're living and active and you're moving through the scriptures. So I pray you would do that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So what 
Paul is going to address this morning are things like wisdom and power as it relates to the culture, but also as it relates to the gospel and God. And one of the questions that I've been forced to ask myself that I want to kind of put out there for you this morning um, is how does the wisdom and power in our culture that we get from our culture affect our relationship with Jesus? Because in this particular letter, Paul is writing to the church. And so he's warning them, he's going to warn them, that we're going to see today about the wisdom of the world and the power from the world and how that affects how we view the gospel and our relationship with Jesus. And the question is, he's going he's to say that the gospel is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's ridiculous. And so from a worldly standpoint, that's the way we should view the gospel. And we're, it's connected to last week. This is a letter. This is one letter Paul wrote to a church. So all of these weeks are connected. Last week, Paul talked primarily about unity. We looked at verse 10. It was kind of the, the summary verse or the thesis verse for the whole book. He wants unity. He says, why are there divisions among you? And Paul goes into, why are you kind of using these church leaders like Apollos and, and, and Peter and himself, Paul, to prop yourself up, to give you a sense of identity because you're running with the crowd that you think is going to give you the most status or the most identity or to, to, to be the most value. And in a sense, he says, cut it out. You need to have one mind and you need to be focused on Jesus. You need to be focused on the gospel and you need to allow that to give you your primary identity. But the question that he didn't get to last week that he's going to get to this week is, why, why were people so prone to following these other leaders? Like what about them made, made the, the people of the church in Corinth kind of prone to following these church leaders and kind of using them to prop themselves up and give them an identity. And Paul's going to get into that um, this morning. But one thing that we have to know, kind of moving into this passage, is, is what was happening in the culture, right? So the, 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 the city of Corinth was a Greek city, was a Greek city before the Romans came in and conquered it. And Greeks, if you know anything about history, were, were very fond of, of wisdom and philosophy um, they, they had these people called the Sophists, Sophia meaning um, wisdom or philosophy, kind of the root there. And they were people who valued ideas. Valued talking about ideas. Some of the greatest philosophers that we have that have ever been given to us in the world have been from that Greek culture and time period. When the Romans came in, they didn't think too highly of philosophy. They were more about military power, political power, and kind of a, more of a dominant, forceful rule in that. But they didn't completely get rid of um, the, the, the sophists and the philosophies and the ideas in this culture. So the culture that Paul is writing into here in Corinth and, and this church was planted in a place where you have kind of two types of people in, in some sense. You're either going to kind of lean more towards being a person that's, that's very Roman, that you desire power, you believe in politics, and you, 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 you kind of worship Caesar, and you believe that is the way to, for, a, for a culture to flourish. Then you have on the other side, if you weren't into that and the, kind of the, the gladiator games and all these things that the Romans instituted, you went back to philosophy. You looked to the, your intellect, to ideas, to wisdom. You were looking for the person to kind of um, hitch your trailer to, to say, I'm with that guy. 
I'm smart, I'm wise, I want to be with him. So you could kind of lean more towards the, this, this Greek idea of philosophy. This is the mindset of even the church, because all of the people in Corinth were saved out of this culture. So this is kind of how what Paul is thinking about as he writes this. Okay, so let's look at verse 17. Kind of the, we ended on this last week, but this will connect us to this week. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's talking about the purpose, the reason why I've come is to preach the gospel. Not necessarily to baptize, really not to do anything else. The primary reason I have come is to preach the gospel, to make the good news known, to lift Jesus up. And this begins a section in, in 1 Corinthians um, where, where it's, it's, it's brilliant writing from Paul. And we don't see this in our English, but I just want to highlight it because it's, it's really fascinating that Paul is really combining a, a Hebrew poetic style, verse 17 through the first two chapters of, of uh, first two verses of, of the second chapter of Romans. Paul is writing in a, in a prose that's more like Hebrew poetry. So if you were of Jewish background, of Hebrew background, as you were hearing this read to you in that church in Corinth, you would have gotten it. It's like, this is, this is poetry as Paul is writing this, but we don't, that didn't come across in English as much. But Paul was also um, kind of mimicking an epitaph. And what an epitaph was, was it was a, a part of the Greek culture and it was a way they would honor um, people in their culture that did heroic things. And there was one particular epipath from the uh, Peloponnesian War where the Greeks uh, won this huge battle. And Paul, if you look at that actually epitaph, Paul is like, not the same words obviously, but the cadence and how Paul is writing and what he is driving at is almost identical to that epitaph. So as people would have heard this being read, Paul was kind of making a bridge to the Greeks who would have been familiar with that, but also making a bridge to um, the Jewish folks with this, this Hebrew poetry. So Paul was brilliant in how he wrote this, and we, this doesn't come across necessarily in our English, English translation. So as we get into this wisdom idea this morning, Paul is not saying that rhetoric and persuasion and, and, and really using your words wisely, he's not saying that doesn't matter. What he is saying is when those things obscure or get in the way or take away from the primary message, which is the gospel, then it becomes a problem. Paul is all about using his intellect and his wisdom and persuasion and rhetoric, which we'll see, to persuade people to believe this message. But his focus is always on the gospel. It's always on the gospel. So let's look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or scandalous to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So here we, Paul starts off kind of talking about these two kinds of people, two categories. Some hear this, those who are perishing hear this, and um, they think it's foolishness. They think it's scandalous. And we'll talk more about why they think it's scandalous here in a second when we look at different kinds of groups. And so he says, those who are perishing, perishing spiritually, find this scandalous. They find this foolish. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. So people who hear the gospel, hear the grace of God offered to them, and they, they don't believe it, they don't have faith, they don't want anything to do with it. Paul's saying that group of people considers that foolishness and they are perishing as a result of not having faith and believing that. It's spiritual death, separation from God um, in the world, but also for all eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. 
Okay, so this is a serious kind of, he comes out of the gate swinging here. You have two kinds of people, some who think it's crazy, who think it's scandalous. And maybe some of the, you in here that aren't followers of Jesus, you think what we do and what we talk about in our faith, it's silly. It's hard to believe. It's crazy. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's, that's going to happen. It is a little crazy. It is a little scandalous. And we'll get into more why it is scandalous here in a second. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this has echoes of Romans 1.16. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Say the gospel is the power of God. The, the, the cross is, is central to the gospel. It's, it's, it's power to those who are being saved. And that's those of us who have, have faith and have professed faith. That's us. That's who he's talking about. And notice being saved is a, is a process word. It's a, it's a verb that's not completed yet. So all of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, and we know this about ourselves, we're all in process. There's parts of us that are still being saved and being sanctified. And there's, there's parts of all of us that lack maturity. And that robs us of, of being in a relationship with God where we truly flourish. And we truly um, experience true freedom and joy, but we're all in process. And he's leading us that way. But he's saying that the gospel is the power. The power is found in the gospel. And so you see him kind of connecting verse 17 and verse 18, and then that power comes through the Holy Spirit, which we'll get into next week where we focus mostly on the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 20. Rhetorical questions here. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? And so what he's getting at here, he's kind of bringing up these rhetorical questions. Where are these people at? Like, let me see this wisdom. I want you to think about the people in your mind, he's saying to the Corinthians, that you think about when you talk about debating and, and, and um, the, the one who is wise and the scribe. Where are these people at? I want you to think about them. And what he's trying to do here is saying, compared to the wisdom of God, they are nothing. God's going to make them foolish. He has made them look foolish. And this for us, I think, comes in is when we want to try to compare ourselves horizontally to one another. We, we, we're, we, we all struggle with this, right? We look at other people and we play this comparison game. And it's a deadly game and it, and it doesn't lead to freedom and joy. Because if we compare ourselves to someone else and we think we're better than them, then we're just mean and prideful and arrogant, right? That doesn't do us any good. And then if we compare ourselves to someone else and we think they're so much better than us in this area or we couldn't compare to them, then we're, 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 we're in despair, we put our heads down. We're shameful. We feel terrible about ourselves. We feel like we don't have any value in comparison to these other people. What Paul is trying to get at is, compared to God, no one is wise. Everyone is foolish. And that's the beauty about the gospel. It flattens the playing field where no one can say, I'm smart enough to be saved. No one can say, I have enough insight or I'm gifted enough to be saved. Say, no, compared to God, we are all broken, um, foolish, people in comparison to the perfect wisdom of God. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, to save those who believe. So again, Paul is not, he's not being intellectual, anti-intellectual here. Paul is very intellectual. He's very smart. He's brilliant. He's not being anti-intellectual here, kind of railing against wisdom. What he's getting at here is Remember, in this culture, they lifted wisdom up almost to the highest virtue. And he's saying, this won't save you. 
Your intellect is not going to save you. You can't get to where you want to go just by being really, really smart or very, very educated, right? And if that was the case, we know that the, the, all the smartest people in the world would be the ones who were saved. And at some point, there'd be a line, and those who aren't smart enough wouldn't be saved, right? Like, if, 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 it'll, if our intellect saved us, that's the way salvation would work. And we know that's not the way it works. But he's not being anti-intellectual here. He's, but he's speaking to an audience, and I think not too different from, our, from, from us in here, in, in Norman, um, that we, we pride ourselves on education quite a bit. So we need to hear this and know that our education, our intellect, cannot save us. Look at verse 22. Now he's going to start breaking down why are people not responding to the gospel? It says that those who are perishing think it's foolish. Well, why do these people who are perishing think it's foolish? Here it is. For Jews demand signs, and Greek seeks wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Real quick before we get to the, the Jews and Gentiles thing here, preach here, um, it, it, it really is focused on the message, okay? So Paul's trying to remove himself from the equation. This idea of preach kind of comes from this idea in this, this culture of, of being a herald. And a herald was someone who, who basically passed on a message. They weren't there to, to show off. They weren't there for themselves to be attention, the attention. They wanted to pass on a message from someone higher than them or someone more important than them. And this is kind of what Paul's getting. I'm a herald focused on the message here. Don't focus on me. Don't focus on my intellect and my rhetoric. Focus on the message, the message of the gospel. So let's look at these two groups here. Let's start with the Greeks. The Greeks seek wisdom, and it says the gospel or the cross of Christ is folly. It's folly to the Gentiles. Well, why is it, why is it folly to them? Well, this, this, this culture that, that, was, uh, that Paul's writing into, it was a meritocracy, which means the way you excelled, the way you thrived, the way you climbed the ladder in the culture was based off your merit, based off your hard work, based off of being able to put yourself in the right places, usually with your mind and usually with your hard work to be able to climb that ladder, to, to get to where you wanted to go, right? That's, you weren't necessarily born into this. Now, obviously there's some nuance there, but, but primarily there, there was a way to climb this ladder by your hard work and by your intellect. So this culture recognized a lot of external things. It valued a lot of external things, things like hard work, your wealth, intellect, how well you were with words, how, how powerful you were. Were you a politician? Were you um, a military leader? Were you a, a, an accomplished um, a person in the gladiator ring, right? These are the things this world um, uh, uh, valued, right? And so these are the things Paul is getting after when he says, okay, and think about this. Like if, if, you're, if you're in this world and that's what you value and that's the way you climb the ladder, that's the way you find your value and your worth, how foolish is it to go die on a cross? Like, right? Like if that's who you are, it's like, okay, so your faith, if, I, if you're a Greek here, a Gentile, you're thinking, so your faith is built on a guy who laid down his life. He was, he was a criminal or at least supposed criminal and he suffers a horrible, horrific death on a, on a, basically a tool that the Romans created to make death and execution embarrassing and torturous. And you're saying that your faith, your Messiah, your Savior is that guy? Heck no, because that's not going to get me anywhere in this world. Following this guy, it's not going to help me because this is a meritocracy. I got to work hard. I got to kind of show off my intellect. I got to put myself out there to be able to climb the ladder. 
You know, in our day and age, the cross isn't, I mean, we, we, we're so far removed from, from that as used as a execution tool that we don't understand the cross. I think we've all obviously know the background of the cross because of Jesus, but we wear him around our necks. We hang him up on our walls. Churches put him on their buildings, right? There's nothing wrong because we know we're on this side of the cross and that means a lot to our faith, right? But we have to, for a second, go back and put ourselves when the people of this, this particular world Paul's writing into here uh, die on a cross, crucified. Like, you're crazy. I'm not following a guy like that. It'd be like, hey, let's, let's, let's lift up the electric chair, right? Let's like, let's like make the electric chair the symbol of our, of our worship in this culture. I mean, that just sounds so bizarre and so, so alien. And that is exactly how the Gentiles were thinking about this, right? They were thinking about it in this way. And so it's, it's, it's foolishness, right? It just doesn't make sense. It's not foolish that it's like, it's dumb or people who believe in this are somehow um, not intellectual. It just doesn't even compute with the way their culture works. Like it just doesn't even make sense. It's, it's scandalous, right? It's scandalous and it, it's, 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 um, it's hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp. And honestly, um, we're not that different from them. We're not that different than them. If you think about how much we value education, how much we value power, prestige, how much we value what people think of us, how much of our society is built on kind of picking yourself up by your bootstraps and working really, really hard, right? And so we value these things. We value comfort or how do we set up our lives where we can set up our lives to have, to have some comfort and some security for me and my family. And this is what our culture is built around. I started thinking, this sounds like the American dream, right? The Corinthians probably weren't too far away from this. If you, I, I looked at what, what is kind of the uh, definition of the American dream. Listen to this. The ideal by which equality of opportunity is available to any American, allowing the highest aspirations and goals to be achieved. Here, aspirations, goals, achievement. I mean, this is, this is Corinth. Like, this is Roman culture, right? And again, our, I know that not everyone has access to the American dream, but it's built into the fabric of our, of our nation and our society that there's this dream that if I work hard enough, for the most part, things were, are going to work out for me. So again, we're, we, we live in somewhat of a meritocracy and that is counter to the gospel. So this is where we have to be careful. Those things, working hard's not bad, working hard's not wrong, but when it becomes our, our religion, it becomes godlike to us, then it can become a problem. We have trouble receiving the gospel the way we need to receive it. So it's foolishness. It's foolishness. Maybe it's foolishness to some of you in this room. Then you have the Jews, right? The stumbling block. This is pretty straightforward, right? Jews were expecting a Messiah, someone to come conquering king on a white horse that would make war and physically, militarily overthrow the Romans. They wanted to move out the Jews and they wanted their, their Messiah, their king to reign. So when Jesus comes rolling in in that final week on a donkey, they're like, okay, this isn't working out the way we thought. And then he lays down his life. They're like, this isn't, this isn't what we want to follow. This is not what we want. We're not following this guy. And so they thought they were headed for something else with Jesus. And Paul calls it a stumbling block because they, they trip over this truth, right? They, they think it's headed one way and then they're, they're almost intellectually caught off guard or they stumble because Jesus is not doing things the way he thought they would. So this, this idea of the cross and a humiliating death, that's not a way a king suffers. It's not the way the Messiah should, should come into this world. At least that's the way the Jewish, the Jew, Jewish people were thinking about it and hoping would, would happen. So let's take our world. What, what would Norman value? 
right? Norman, Norman area. Like what, what would this city, um, like if, if Corinth was known for wisdom and power on that side and you had this kind of Jewish culture on this other side, what would Norman be known for? Or maybe a, a, another way to ask this question is what do we not want to be known for? Like the Greeks would have said, we don't want to be known for being dumb. We're smart. We can't be dumb. Romans, we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be militarily weak or politically weak, right? So what would Norman be? Would it be, we don't want to, we don't want to be uncomfortable or we don't want to be seen as lacking or we don't want to expose ourselves too much because somebody will think we're not as, have this image that we want to put out there. Now we could go on and on and on, but part of kind of understanding this text is bringing this over into our um, our city and our world. And remember, he's talking to the church here. So what he's trying to do, these, these, are, these are Christians who are saved. He's like, remember who you are. Remember who Jesus has made you now. You're a new creation. That stuff that you kind of grabbed onto when you were part of the culture here, that's gone. You're part of a new kingdom. You're part of a new reality now. So he's reminding them what that is with, with, with all of this really. Um, and it's important to know as we get into this book further, these specific issues are going to come up. And they all come back to this idea that the Corinthians really thought that because of their background and the culture that they could do something for their salvation. That even though they probably understood some aspects of grace, they were still living in a way that we're pretty awesome. Like we're smart and we have it together and God is lucky to have us on his team. And they were just puffed up with pride and all of these issues we're gonna go back to, go back, they go back to selfishness, they go back to comparison, they go back to trying to, to grab, grab uh, power within the church or put their wisdom above God's wisdom. All of these issues come back to this idea that they thought they could save themselves because, they, because of, how, of who they were because how they were made and how they were born, they thought they could um, work their way or earn their salvation. This is why Paul, I think, is so um, um, adamant here, and he's talking about the gospel. Okay, verse 24, let's keep moving. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, so real quick, but to those who were called, this idea of calling, it's kind of a, a weird word um, there in that context, but what theologians refer to this as is an effectual calling. See, when God calls you, when God decides to, to, to set his sights on you and your heart and your spiritual nature, you respond. You will respond. God is the one acting here. He's calling you out of death into life spiritually. This is what that idea of calling means. And so he says, the Jews and the Greeks who have faith, who've accepted this gift, God has called them. God has called them. And so that's this idea of calling here. And God can overcome a heart that is stubborn. God can soften the heart that is seeking wisdom and power. God can overcome anything. Your past, your story, your stubbornness, anything. His grace can overcome any of that. Maybe there's some of you in the room today that um, you, you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't have faith in him. And I, I, would, I would pray that, that the Spirit would maybe do, be doing something in your heart now, that God would be calling you to himself in the way he works, in the way he shows us grace and mercy. Paul here, he didn't become a Christian because he made a, a really good decision or he heard a really good message. God knocked him off a horse and, and, and took the scales off his eyes and he saw things like he'd never seen them before. Just like that. God called Paul, Paul believed, and now we see Paul writing um, these, these letters and is a, is a bedrock foundation person in the church. Look at verse 25. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In this upside-down nature, okay? Now, when Jesus is, is there, cru- being crucified on the cross, and even before that at, at the trial, Jesus could have used wisdom. He could have used power. He was wisdom embodied. He was God. He could have used rhetoric and persuasion and completely just dismantled all the arguments in that trial and gotten off free. Power, he could have called down the angelic armies and could, they could, and could have wiped out the Roman Empire just like that. He was God. He could have done that. That was in his power. That He was capable of that, but he laid it all down. He didn't defend himself. He didn't advocate for himself. He laid all of that down. That's why he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's why he's an advocate for us. That's why he stands in the gap between us and God. It's why we have his righteousness now is because he laid all of that down at the cross. This is just what makes this this so really scandalous in a good way to those of us who are Christians. That Jesus, who could have who could have just, with a snap of his fingers, just changed the whole storyline here that he was going into, that he was walking in. But yet, the beauty is, is that he didn't. He relented. How hard is it for us to relent when our power's challenged or our wisdom's challenged? It's really hard for us to hold back. And we're, we're not God. We're not that strong when it comes to those things. But this is God. And he says, nope, I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to lay it down for the sake of my Father's glory to, to, to reconcile broken, wicked sinners who couldn't save themselves back to my Father. And this is what he accomplished on the cross. And it's beautiful. This is where like, our affection should be stirred when we think of Jesus and who he was, that he went to the cross, suffered a horrible, torturous death, was embarrassed, was mocked, was ridiculed by people who had worldly wisdom, but had, had worldly power, and he makes a mockery of everything because he's the one who laid down his life, and eventually he's going to come back and set up his kingdom, and he will reign one day. And this, this foolishness of worldly power and wisdom will be made fully known one day, but in that moment, he laid it all down for, 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 for broken, undeserving sinners like all of us in this room. And this is, this is such good news. It's so scandalous, this news, because again, it doesn't make sense. Like, the, like the, the way this salvation thing works in our faith, it doesn't make sense, but that's why it's beautiful and it's wonderful and we're undeserving and it's not our wisdom, it's not our power, it's not our gifts, it's not our whatever that saved us. It's purely the work of Jesus and God's grace. And that is wonderful and that is good news. And it's foolishness to the world because it makes no sense if you're trying to climb the ladder in our society or gain influence. This is not the way to do it, to lay your life down for the sake of others. It's just not. Let's keep going. Now, Paul here is going to make a little shift and he's going to basically give us some application. Give us some application. So he's kind of set us up here for the gospel. And here's why it's important. Now, remember, unity is, his, his, is one of his main themes here. So he's going to go back to this idea of unity. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There was probably a few historians say of of these categories in the church at this time, but it definitely was not the majority, right? Not the majority of people had had those qualities. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Okay, so, so this, this has, we, we just went through um, the Sermon on the Mount. This is that same idea here, this upside-down kingdom, like the weak or strong. God exalts the proud, shows grace to the humble, but removes the proud. God shows, great, shows grace and mercy to the meek, but takes away the strong. This is way, the way God's kingdom works, and this is what Paul is saying here. Then he has these big theological words that I wish we could get into a lot more, but he's our righteousness now that we've been, he's, he's given to us. It's not our righteousness that makes us, that saves us. It's his righteousness that saves us. So we don't, and that's static, that there's nothing that's happening with his righteousness. If it was, it was our righteousness that saved us, it would be up to us to, keep, to stay perfect, to stay holy. And that would be a miserable way to live. But it's his righteousness that saves us. Sanctification. This just means um, somewhat growing in maturity, and that's a process. From the moment you become a follower of Jesus to the moment you die, that is the process of sanctification and redemption. We have redemption. We're new creations if you have faith, and we'll have our full redemption when we die or Jesus returns. And here's the application here. It's pretty simple. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So based off of all he just said, he says, if you're going to boast in anything, you're going to have pride in anything. If you're going to really be kind of arrogant in anything, be boastful about Jesus. Not about yourself, not about your gifts, not about your wisdom, not about your power. Boast in Jesus and boast hard. Go after it. Like there's no limit that, to our boasting in Jesus because every time we boast in Jesus, God gets glory. God gets honor when we talk about how awesome Jesus is. How not awesome we were, but Jesus makes us awesome because of his righteousness. That makes Jesus look good, and that makes God the Father look good. That is the purpose of why we're on earth, is to glorify God. So the more we boast in Jesus, the more God gets glory. But it also helps when it comes to unity. Because here's the deal. Like, if you're boasting in yourself, what you're doing is you're doing the horizontal comparison thing again. And if, you, if you're boasting in yourself, that, in, in a sense, what you're saying is, I am great at this, and I am better than everyone else in this. And if you're going to be a family, if you're going to live in community, transparent, honest fellowship, you can't be boastful in yourself. You're either going to be prideful, or, and then you're going to have a fall, right? Because someone else is going to come and outboast you and, and beat you out, and then you're going to feel like a failure then you're going to have to find something else to boast in to make yourself, to prop yourself up to make sure you look good or you look great. Again, it's just this cycle that's going to be divisive in community. And so this week I've been thinking about what, what are our tendencies to boast? What's my tendency? Like we all have these tendencies, these areas of our life that we like to boast in. And a lot of it comes out from our stories, from how we were raised, uh, important key moments in our life. And one of the things that, that, that God has kind of... Uh, laid on my heart this week and I've been reflecting on is um, I think the area that I boast in is, is hard work. And a lot of this is from my story. Like I, I, was, I was born not, I, I don't feel like I was very gifted at, at anything when I was born. Like I wasn't just saying, hey, I'm gonna be really good naturally at this. And my, my parents, they instilled hard work. That was one of the values. I knew I needed to work hard. And early on in life, I figured it out. Hey, if I work really hard, I can be pretty good at anything if I set my mind to it and, and, and outwork everybody. 
That's how accolades came. That's how I became a, a good student and good at sports was not because I was awesome and gifted at this because I just outworked everybody else and I knew it. And I was like, okay, I, I'm not as good as you, but I will be one point because I will outwork you. That was how I rolled for my whole childhood and even through college. But God saved me when I was 17. Um, he called me, changed my heart, and I still struggle with that every single day because I have this, it's part of my story to work hard. But again, that is, that is antithetical to the gospel. Like you don't work hard for God's grace. You don't work hard, you don't work your way into the kingdom of God. Is hard work a good virtue to have? I think so. But when, it's, when you start boasting in it, when you start like thinking you're better than everyone else and start really, and this is where it gets dark for me, is I start evaluating other people's work ethic and then I start comparing myself to them. And if you're not hardworking and I'm in a bad place, I'm gonna, I may not verbalize it, but I may start judging you. Because I'm like, this is, this is important to me. And if you don't set a measure up to my standards, it's gonna be like in my mind, you're just not there. But that's hard work. There's a hundred other things that you could be um, seeking righteousness in. Apart from that, I, 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 here's a few of them. Um, your, your family. Like maybe you're a parent, like you do things right as a parent and all these other parents and eh, they're just not quite as good as you. So I'm a great parent because I do everything right. Maybe it's theological righteousness. Like, you know, you know, the ins and outs of theology, you're precise and you, you, you kind of gravitate towards that in your faith. And everyone, if, if they can't quote Calvin or can't quote Luther or Augustine, or maybe they're calling him Augustine and you're like, no, it's Augustine. Like, like if that's you, then you probably have theological righteousness. That's probably number two for me, if you couldn't tell. Um, intellectual righteousness, right? Like, like you're smart and you know it. You probably got the scholarship, right? You, you, you can memorize Bible verses like this. Um, your schedule righteousness. You're like, I got my schedule together. I know what I'm doing in 2023 by now, right? Like, like and anybody who's a last minute planner, they just don't got their stuff together, you know? And, and you laugh, but you think about in community, when, and, and those of you who are married, you get this because you and your spouse have opposite righteousness here. You fight. You fight hard over these things because you're building yourself up. And that same thing happens in community. It could be financial righteousness. You're like, you, you, you got all your finances buttoned down. And if anybody's in debt, that's just the worst to be in debt, right? If you're, if you're that kind of person. Mercy righteousness, right? Like you care deeply for the poor and the broken and maybe mental health. And if somebody doesn't care about those things, they're not a Christian. Because those things are the most important to you at least. Because that's, you, that's what you've boasted in. That's what you're seeking your righteousness in. Political righteousness. I don't need to go there. Um, you know probably who you are if that's you. Uh, tolerance righteous. Maybe you're the person who's just tolerant. Like maybe these, these evangelicals who are Bible believers, you're just kind of on the edge of tolerance and you're always the one that's like, I'm tolerant of people. I'm the most tolerant person. I'm the most loving person. I'm a lot like Jesus in this way because I'm so tolerant, right? Well, maybe you don't stand up for truth enough if you're that person, right? So like all of us have these things that we look towards to, to kind of build our righteousness up. And this boasting thing, this is what Paul's talking about because if you find anything other than Jesus to boast in, you will set yourself up higher than others in community. It will happen. Maybe not initially, but as you get closer to each other and you get to know each other's stories and spend time around each other, this stuff will come out. So what Jesus is saying you're all in trouble, you're all sinful, 
You're all wicked. Nobody deserved grace. Nobody deserved mercy. And the beauty is, you all, those of you who have faith, you've got it. Not based off of your works, not based off of anything else, based off of Jesus' work. So who, what can you boast in? Nothing other than Jesus. So this whole thing has been aiming at this application. Boast in Jesus. Boast as much as you want in Jesus. Shout from the rooftops about how awesome Jesus is. But don't boast in yourself. One, it robs God of his glory and honor, but it also will damage and hurt your relationships and community. And that's what Paul, one of the primary things he's after as we get into this letter is um, community, um, unity. Not everybody thinks the same, because here's the deal. The person who works really hard in community and in a loving way, they can help people that maybe are challenged in that way. Somebody who's really good at finances, who has that kind of bent and that gifting, they are needed in the body to help other people who are a little bit more challenged in that way. But that, that mutual um, submission and helping one another um, mature up is not going to happen if you're so arrogant. No one's going to want to ha- get help from you in that area if you're arrogant and you're boasting in that area. So he doesn't want everybody to be the same. He wants everybody to be unified around the gospel, have a gospel understanding so that we bring these different parts of our stories together and we can truly build one another up in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much once again for your word. And um, I can imagine when Paul was writing this letter to the, the Corinthians again, he probably wasn't happy because this, he was writing this because of issues, because of problems that were happening in this church. But I thank you for, um, in your sovereignty, that we get to have a front row seat and kind of a peek behind the curtain at all of the things and brokenness and issues that were happening in this church. We thank you that we get to see this and we see Paul as he's a a leader writing to them. And we can receive that as we're receiving it from Paul and and checking ourselves and reflecting and making sure uh, we have healthy unity, making sure we're not um, boasting in anything other than Jesus and the cross. So help us. We all are boastful. We all lean that way in some area. So help us realize that that's even a gift from you those personality traits, those things that how we were shaped by our parents or our story, those are all gifts from you in your sovereignty. If we're good at something, then we need to lay those things down and use them for the sake of the body, not to put ourselves above other people in our minds and see ourselves better than other people. Help us in that. Humble us. Help us be unified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.